Well, good morning. It is great to see you today. So glad that you are here. Uh, you know, my eight-year-old son, Noah, has a really great magic trick. He does. He's really good at this. He has perfected how to make a toothpick disappear. He's really good at this. Now, I've noticed this uh, thing happen when we have people over to our home. Uh, it could be some friends or extended family members. Noah sees a new audience to try this out on. And so he'll say, hey, can I show you a magic trick? And I can almost like see the look on their face as they're preparing themselves to pretend to be impressed, right? They're like, all right, we're going to give some encouragement to this eight-year-old who thinks he's got a good trick. Okay, all right. Okay, here we go. And then Noah shows them the trick. All right, let's see. Here it goes. Hi, my name is Noah, and I treat toothpicks disappear. And I can also make them reappear. I promise there's no special effects there. I know, very good, right? I'm telling you, it's actually a really good trick. And, and I see these guests who are here, and they're ready to pretend to be impressed, but they're genuinely like, Whoa, wait, how'd you just do that? Wait, what? Do that again, you know? And, and, it, you know, and, and that's the mark of a great magic trick, right? When, when something happens and it messes with you, and you think, wait a minute, that's not the way things are supposed to work, right? Things aren't supposed to just disappear and reappear. How did you do that? But that's the mark of a great trick because it messes with your sense of the way things are supposed to be. And you find yourself leaning in and trying to figure it out and it gets your attention. That's what's so great. It's surprising and it's unexpected. There's something that happens when something like that messes with our sense of the way that things are supposed to be. Well, more than 2,000 years ago, there was a person who walked this earth and did things that were so unexpected that people are still talking about it. You see, this is what Jesus did. He didn't come to do a bunch of magic tricks, but what Jesus did is he came and he messed with our sense of the way things are supposed to be. He did all of these unexpected things and said things that were surprising, and it caused people to lean in. It caught their attention. And he, what Jesus talked about was the kingdom of God, and he introduced this, this idea of the kingdom that fell upside down. And he talked about a different kind of value system and a different way to order our internal world and a different way to treat people a different kind of economy, a different uh, way to approach God, all these things that he turned on its head. See, this, this upside-down kind of living is what Jesus introduced when he talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that is not just some far-away place that someday we'll go to after we die, but he talked about the kingdom of God right here now among us as the reign and the rule of God that we're we're invited to notice and participate in right here all around us. Now, as Jesus began his ministry, uh, the scripture uh, records for us a famous sermon that Jesus gave that was a picture of what the kingdom of God is all about. In fact, it's in that sermon that Jesus taught us to pray, and he used that phrase, your kingdom come. 
We find this text uh, of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's 107 verses long, and it's a description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, today we're kicking off this new series this fall called Kingdom Come. And throughout these weeks ahead, we're going to be studying together the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the truth is we can study these words of Jesus for a lifetime and never fully plumb the depths. There's always more to learn. So today, as we begin, I want to invite you to encounter Jesus through his sermon through the words of Jesus, to experience the whole Sermon on the Mount in one sitting. I'm going to share this sermon today from the message, so it might sound a little different than what you have heard before. But before we begin, I want to invite you to pause with me, to quiet your heart, to dare to believe that just as the scripture promises, that, that these are not just some ancient words in the past, but that these are the living words of God, and that he still speaks through these words today. So I want to encourage you to open your heart to the possibility that God has something to say to you today through these words of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for your living word. And Lord, as we pause now, as we focus our hearts on these words of Jesus, we ask today for some encounters with Jesus in the room. God, we open our hearts to you. Help us to listen well and give us the courage to obey. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. This is what he said. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment that you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves being cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and your heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show others how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you'll discover who you really are and find your place in God's kingdom. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. 
Not only that, consider yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when this happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning, bringing out the God flavors of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. <laughs> We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bears, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? <laughs> I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine, keep open house, be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous father in heaven. Don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophet's. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after earth wears out and stars burn out, God's law will be alive and working. Trivialize even the smallest item in God's law. And you will have only trivialized yourself. But take it seriously and show the way to others and you will find honor in the kingdom. Unless you do far better than the Pharisees in matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering the kingdom. You're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. I'm telling you, that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Carelessly call a brother idiot and you might just find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. This is how I want you to conduct yourself in these matters. If you enter your place of worship, and about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge that a friend has against you? Abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. Or say you're out on the street and an old enemy accosts you. Don't lose a minute. Make the first move. Make things right with him. After all, if you leave the first move to him, you're likely to end up in court, maybe even jail. And if that happens, you won't get out without a stiff fine. You know the next command pretty well, too. Don't go to bed with another's spouse. But 
Don't think that you've preserved your virtue simply by staying out of bed. Your heart can be corrupted by lust even quicker than your body. Those leering looks that you think nobody notices, those also corrupt. Let's not pretend that this is easier than it really is. If you want to live a morally pure life, this is what you have to do. You have to blind your right eye. The moment that you catch it in a lustful leer, better to live one eye than or else be dumped on a moral trash pile. And you have to chop off your right hand the moment that you notice it raised threateningly. Better a bloody stump than your whole being discarded for good in the dump. Remember the scripture that says, whoever divorces his wife, let him do it legally, giving her divorce papers and her legal rights. Too many of you are using this as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you're legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're guilty of making her an adulteress unless she's already made herself one by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're guilt. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask a moral failure. And don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it. Or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? <laughs> Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? 
Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. (laughs) Your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Be especially careful when you're trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, I call them. Treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage. Acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That's the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom, Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet and secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God and you'll begin to sense his grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply like this. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You are ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. In prayer, there's a connection between what you do and what God does. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without also forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. When you practice some appetite-denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small-time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. When you go into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. 
shampoo and comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you are doing. He'll reward you well. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets corroded by rust and eaten by moths or worse, stolen by, uh, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it is safe from rust and moth and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where you most want uh, it's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place where you most want to be and will end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your whole body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you close the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt of the other. You can't worship God and money both. If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There's far more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes that you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God. And you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone, by fussing in front of the mirror, ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? All this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, yet have you ever seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, give his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so that you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and how he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provision. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, 
Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. (laughs) That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing the holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Don't be flip with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're just being cute and inviting sacrilege. Don't bargain with God. Ask for what you need. Be direct. This isn't a cat and mouse hide and seek game that we're playing. If your child asks for bread, do you trick him with sawdust? If he asks for fish, do you scare him with a live snake on his plate? (laughs) As bad as you are, you wouldn't think of such a thing. You're at least decent to your own children. So don't you think your God who conceived you in love will be even better? Here's a simple rule of thumb guide for behavior. Ask yourself what you want people to do for you. Then grab the initiative and do it for them. Add up God's law and the prophets and this is what you get. Don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that can be practiced in your spare time. (laughs) Don't fall for that nonsense, even though crowds of people do. The way to life, to God, is vigorous and requires total attention. Be wary of false preachers who smile a lot, dripping with practiced sincerity. Chances are they're out to rip you off in one way or another. Don't be impressed with charisma. Look for character. Who preachers are is the main thing, not what they say. A genuine leader will never exploit your emotions or your pocketbook. These diseased trees, along with their bad apples, are going to be chopped down and burned. Knowing the correct password, saying, master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my father wills. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands strutting up to me and saying, master, we we preached the message, we bashed the demons, our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourselves important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. These words that I speak to you are not incidental additions to your standard of living, homeowner improvements to your life. 
They are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you're like a smart carpenter who built his house on solid rock. Rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house. It was fixed to the rock. But if you just use my words in Bible studies and don't work them into your life, You're like a stupid carpenter who built his house on the sandy beach. A storm rolled in and the waves came up and it collapsed like a house of cards. When Jesus concluded his address, the crowd burst into applause. They had never heard teaching like this. It was apparent that he was living everything he was saying. Quite a contrast to their religion teachers. This was the best teaching they had ever heard. Will you stand and pray with me? Oh, our gracious God, as we listen to these words of Jesus, our hearts are humbled. Our minds are processing these words, and our hearts have a lot to learn. So God, I pray for each one of us today. Lord, I pray that we might be found among those who work these words into our lives. And God, we pray that this journey this fall, this kingdom come prayer that we pray together, God, that it would begin today. Lord, that you would give us courage to respond and obey to those things that you have placed upon our minds and our hearts. We thank you, God, for your living word. Thank you for speaking to us here today. Thank you for not being finished with us yet. We love you, Lord. We trust you. And it is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray, and together we say, amen.